0: For this evening's sermon, as we continue covering those topics briefly uh, that are covered in the Westminster Confession of Faith, we come tonight to the topic of the civil magistrate. And so I turn as our starting point for a scripture lesson to Romans chapter 13. i will read here verses 1 through 7. This is God's holy word as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the Christians at Rome as he was planning to make a visit there. So we hear the words of Christ through his Apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so it is without error. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's holy word. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, Fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This the reading of God's holy word for us at this, this time, at least for the next few minutes. We'll be getting into other scriptures as we make our way through this sermon tonight. But let's uh, pray. Lord, we do pray that you would enlighten us by your word. and We thank you for those who've gone before us, who've helped us to understand your word and systematize what we find within it. As we come to this topic of the civil magistrate tonight, we do pray that we would consider well what you teach us about the authority of civil government under Christ. We pray that you would help us to submit properly to those things to which we should submit, but also to discern well when we ought to resist abuse of authority. We pray all of these things in the name of the one from whom and through whom all authority proceeds, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. These days there is a great deal of confusion over the proper relation of church and state, and of state to the church. And, of course, there's a lot more than we can say in a sermon tonight. We note in this scripture reading I just read, that we see notions like, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. But we also know from scripture that there are times to resist. We'll talk a little bit about that tonight. When we see that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. What, what about when rulers become a terror to good works? You know, What do we do then? We won't be able to cover all the nuances of those things tonight. But we'll touch upon at least the things that are covered in the Westminster Confession and what it has to say about these things. Sadly, a lot of the greatest confusion about the proper relationship of church to state and state to church uh, is found, can be found, among professing Christians. It shouldn't surprise us that unbelievers are confused about it uh, because they don't have a proper understanding at least of the role of the church and often not even of the role of the state in your life. But Christians should not be confused about these things. I can attest that that confusion was rampant in my former denomination. I'm not meaning to to harp on that all the time, but that's something that I experienced. Uh, That's doubly sad because Presbyterians have a clearly stated position on the authority of the state, in the Westminster Confession, in the chapter entitled, Of the Civil Magistrate. And that's the chapter we're going to cover tonight, topics from Scripture that are covered in that chapter. And that chapter summarizes well the Scriptural view, that is to say, God's view, as He revealed in Scripture, of the proper role for civil government and how we are to relate to it. And the Confession begins... It's a little chapter on that. By saying God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world. Boy, there's a lot contained just in that. and I'm not going to be able to go into all of it. But understand that that whoever is in charge of the governments of the earth, whoever we might summarize as being the kings of the earth in biblical language, God himself is the supreme Lord and King of the world. So... Governments that fail to recognize that are in rebellion against their creator and their supreme lord and king. God, the supreme lord and king of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end hath armed them with the power of the sword, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good, and for the punishment of evildoers." So as Christians, we're not permitted to be anarchists, for example. To say that uh, we ought not to have any government or any restraints on individual freedoms. The government should be protecting individual rights as we see also stated there. The power of the sword there is for the defense and encouragement of them that are good. It's supposed to be defending your freedom. But... At the same time that's not to say that there are no limits on our individual freedom and that government has the power from God to limit that at least to the extent that it would violate the freedom of others. So as Christians we're not permitted to be anarchists living as if there were no legitimate civil power. We can't simply ignore the authority of of the government because we happen to disagree with those who are governing us. The book of Judges repeatedly laments over a time when civil government was not stable. And thus, as the the book says several times toward the end of the book, every man did what was right in his own eyes. In those days there was no king in the land. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Of course, there's more that we can dig in and imply in that, or see implied in that statement that there was no king in the land because in those days, God was to be considered the king of Israel. And people were ignoring his kingship. And there was no human king under God to bring that order. And the various tribes were not heeding their elders or their elders were wicked. And so every man just did what was right in his own eyes. And we see in the book of Judges, things getting progressively worse and worse, as every man did what was right in his own eyes, the society becomes more chaotic, more wicked. Our need for civil government stems from certain basic truths. Number one, God created us to live in an orderly society. He did not create us simply to, to be uh, living anarchically, and chaotically. Genesis 1.28 commands mankind to subdue the earth and have dominion. And that implies organization and rule. In other words, government. If the fall had never happened, Adam would still be alive, and he would be the head of one giant family. And we would have a government that stemmed from God to the head of the family, and then out to other heads of different branches of the family, perhaps. We can speculate as to how that would happen. But there would be order. The second thing that we find, the second basic truth that we find, is that all existing governments have the right to rule from God. If God established a government, then it has a certain right to rule. Now, sometimes there are usurpers and things like that, and it becomes complicated because of sin. People taking authority that doesn't belong to them. But legitimate government has legitimate authority from God. Romans 13.1 There is no authority except from God and that authority exists and every authority that exists has been instituted by God. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. as it is here in the New King James Version. And the third principle we see is that since the fall of mankind into sin, since our fall from our innocent state, government is even more necessary, in a sense, to restrain human sin in order to punish evil and reward good. As Romans 13, three and 4 tells us, as we just read, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So there's to be a restraint on evil. And it's telling that after a time when God was so disgusted with mankind's wickedness, and especially with violence, as we see in Genesis, that he brought the flood upon the earth... One of his first commands to Noah after the flood was to say, if man sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. That's an implication of government authority to carry out capital punishment for wanton murder. So there's the implication then of government there, of course, and the power of the sword being held by that government But all this, of course, is with the understanding that Jesus is king. As we read in Psalm 2, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So all this is with the understanding that God is supreme Christ, being the mediator between God and man, is supreme over the kings of the earth. So here Paul in Romans 13 is talking about the ideal situation in which rulers are not a terror to good works. And and it doesn't require that a ruler be a believer in Jesus Christ, that he could still be a terror uh, to those who do evil and not to those who do good in the general sense of those terms. Now we do have, as we'll deal with briefly here in a bit, the the, uh, problem that we have to deal with in this fallen world sometimes of rulers being a terror to good works and being promoters of evil. But ordinarily they should be a terror not to those who do good but to those who do evil. But even then, if they are not recognizing the lordship of Christ over them, They're in rebellion, and they're told by God in Psalm 2, kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. Your government will not survive unless it submits to Jesus Christ. For His wrath is quickly kindled, blessed are all who take refuge in Him. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus doesn't tell us that all authority except over governments of the earth has been given to me. No, he simply says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Of course, that means the nations belong to him, and so he tells his disciples, go therefore, because I have that authority, and make disciples of all the nations. They all belong to me, I can do what as I please with them, I can call whomever I want out of them. But implied there, of course, is that he has all authority over the governments of the earth. 1 Timothy 5.16 in Revelation 1916, called Jesus King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is not unrelated to the governments of the earth. It's not as if Jesus is the king and head of the church and then the secular state doesn't have any responsibility toward him whatsoever. No, the secular state has a responsibility to bend the knee to Christ Jesus. Also, Ephesians one twenty two reminds us, that all things have been put under Christ's feet. So not just some things, all things. And that includes earthly governments. So any civil government which does not acknowledge Christ as king is in fact in rebellion against its rightful ruler. And Christians have a serious responsibility. Yes, on the one hand, as Paul says there in Romans 13, you submit to them, as we'll see with a couple of caveats here, insofar as they don't command you to disobey God, right? But you submit to them, but that doesn't mean that you go along with every rebellion that they have against God. You still have the responsibility to call them to repent. Call them to account, and to repentance, to bend the knee to Christ. And that includes the United States of America. That isn't too surprising to Christians these days, but there was probably a time some decades ago when it was hard for Christians to think that America's doesn't, uh, America ever does anything wrong, <laughs> that we, that we uh, might need to call our government to repentance. But there has always been sin involved, and the U.S. government has never openly submitted to Christ. Think about it. If we believe that, uh, what we claim we believe, that is, if all things are under Christ's rule, if it's idolatry and blasphemy to claim anything is outside of his rule and not under him as king of kings and lord of lords, if God created all things and all authority is from him, then what does that say about any government, even one we like generally, that does not acknowledge him for who he truly is. What does it say about a government that treats idolatry and false religion as having an equal status under its government with God-revealed religion, with Scripture? Or these days, we might even argue often with greater respect than Christ-honoring religion. Here's a classic Presbyterian statement on that issue. It says, We are not at peace with the American solution to the application of God's word to the civil magistrate, because the risen Jesus is king over public as well as family and church affairs. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. The word of God, therefore, cannot be bound, so we continue to know ourselves as strangers and pilgrims in this world, We await with longing the return of our King. He promises, behold, I am coming quickly. We together with all God's people everywhere respond, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This attitude has colored the history of the Reformed Presbyterian Church in this nation to a great extent. But given that we as Christians understand, hopefully, that the proper relation of the civil government to Christ is one in which the civil government should be submitting to him, the Confession points out, then, it is lawful for Christians to accept and execute the office of a magistrate, that is, somebody serving in civil government, of a magistrate when called thereunto. In the managing whereof, as they might especially maintain piety, justice, and peace according to the wholesome laws of each commonwealth so for that end they may lawfully now under the New Testament wage war upon just and necessary occasions. So as for the first part of that of course we we have a long and storied history in the RP Church of, of parsing out when is it appropriate for a Christian to take an oath of office and uh, how should he go about doing that and we know that we can't do that if it involves Binding us to sin. You You can vote for somebody who needs to take an oath of office as long as that oath of office doesn't bind him to sin. And you can yourself run for that office. As long as there's nothing... That doesn't mean that you are responsible for the sins somebody you voted for commits when they happen to be in office. But if, in order to attain that office, they must sin... In order to carry out the duties of that office, they must sin, and you know that, then of course you're implicated in that. You're partly responsible for it. The same would be true, of course, if you were running for that office. No Christian can do that. But it is lawful, under the right circumstances then, for Christians to accept and execute the office of magistrate. And of course, this was written in a time when it was normal for people to be elected to Parliament or to inherit a kingship or something like that. And it's appropriate for Christians to exercise those offices. And then also it speaks there of, of the civil government's right to, to engage in lawful warfare. That makes a big difference that we lawful there upon just and necessary occasions. So words like just and necessary Are important. There is the legitimate God given power of the civil government. For one thing, to maintain piety. Notice that that's in the confession statement. To maintain piety, justice, and peace, to establish and enforce wholesome laws. Not laws that are contrary to God's word, but laws that are in accord with God's word. No government has the right to engage or to force a law upon the people that is not in accord with God's word. In 1 Timothy 2.2, we are to pray for civil magistrates, Paul says, so that they will help us lead peaceful lives, quiet and godly and dignified. So they should maintain the justice and peace and establish wholesome laws. Psalm 82 verses 3 and 4 commands civil rulers to maintain equal justice for everybody under their government and to rescue the weak from the hand of the wicked. That's the responsibility of civil government. So you see, when the church calls the state to protect the unborn, for example, we're not violating some separation between church and state, as modern leftists imagine. We're just calling the state to live up to its God-given responsibility to defend the weak. Something that I've often found irksome in political discourse in this nation is to hear people who will often... Uh, twist Christ's words to say that, well, the reason that we need to confiscate funds from people over here and redistribute them to people over here is because we're trying to take care of the least of these. No one has any right to make such a claim. Of course, that's a twisting of what Christ means by that in the first place. But I'm not even going to have a discourse with you about caring for the least of these if you have no qualms about unborn children being killed with the permission of the government or even often with its collusion. There's no one more least, if that's grammatically correct to say, than unborn children. There's no one more defenseless. A nation which fails protect those who can't protect themselves cannot survive. God promises to judge it. Secondly, under that paragraph there, gleaning from scripture principles of government, we see that the government has the power of the sword, as we just saw here in Romans 7, to prosecute just wars and to punish evil. So as we saw there in Romans 13, 4, that The ruler does not bear the sword in vain. Civil government, therefore, does have a powerful but strictly bounded authority. The power of the sword is the power to compel behavior. Do this or else, right? They do not have the right to go beyond those strict bounds that God has given. And we do have the right to hold them accountable when they go beyond their bounds. They cannot be the church, nor can they directly govern the church. That's the heresy known as Erastianism, the the belief that the civil government has authority directly over the church. So that, for example, being the king of England makes you the head of the church of England. To keep in mind, the men who wrote this confession saw no inconsistency with that position and the fact that they were actually involved, or people that they were allied to, were actually involved directly in a war against their own king. This was during the English Civil War. The Westminster Assembly was called by the Parliament, which was in a war against its own king. A king who had tried to rule the church in Scotland against the will of the church, and who had now prosecuted a war against the Parliament who was resisting it. The Confession says, in connection to those things, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments. So the power is, of the sword is given to the civil government. That has power over, to simplify it, we often say over the, the physical needs of people, whereas the church has authority in the realm of spiritual needs. That's in some ways an oversimplification, but that's a good starting point. But as the Confession says, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and the sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So the civil magistrate doesn't get to decide who's a church member, uh, who, who is disciplined by the church and how and when, uh, who gets to be a minister, that sort of thing. That's, there's a long history there, of, of, uh, especially in the United Kingdom. In the kingdoms of Scotland and England, especially of how the government has interfered oftentimes in who gets to be the decisions of who gets to be a minister and that sort of thing, and who gets to be disciplined or not by the church. And the confession you're saying, no, no, you don't have any say in that whatsoever. Simply because you're the king or some agent of the king or of the civil government or member of parliament doesn't mean that you have any authority in the church in that sense. Famously, King James the Sixth, of Scotland, who became King James I of England and received a speech from Andrew Melville, the famed preacher, who told him that there were two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland and that King James the Sixth was the head of the state under Christ, but that didn't make him anything but a member of the church. That didn't give him any authority whatsoever as an elder, certainly not as a head of the church. So the confession says here the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered and observed, for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the law of God. I actually cut off my quote here so I don't... I should note that our testimony as Reformed Presbyterians actually rejects most of that paragraph I just read to you. (laughs) So uh, here's here's how much we actually still uh, assume to be the law and order of the church, and even part of the fundamental law of the church. The civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven the rest of that that I just read we understand not quite to be in accord with scripture we disagree with the Westminster assembly on that point or on those points simply because we uh, don't believe we believe that in terms of recognizing what is a blasphemy and a heresy is not within the realm of the authority of the power of the sword but only within the power of the keys now, determining how worship is to be done that's That's the church's authority under Scripture and not the authority of the state. And while the civil magistrate can ask the church any time it wants for advice, the civil magistrate can't compel a synod or council of the church to meet against the will of the church. But we do see that the civil government has a special duty to maintain the freedom of the church of Christ. It has a responsibility to support Christianity and not interfere in the inter- internal matters of the church. We might think of King Uzziah in Second Chronicles chapter 26, who otherwise is said to be a godly king, but who tried to take an ecclesiastical authority to perform the office of the priest that was not his to perform, simply because he was king. 2 Chronicles 26 verses 3 and 4 tell us here, Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So in general, he's said to be a good king. That doesn't mean that good kings can't err. Good kings still make errors. That we see down farther in that chapter in verses 16 through 21 a significant error that poor Uzziah made. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That's something that only priests were supposed to be doing. There was a distinction between the role of the king and the role of a priest. This is why... By the way, just as a Messiah might say, it's so significant that it was promised of the Messiah of Christ that he was to be not a priest according to the order of Aaron, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek, who was a king and a priest at the same time. But here Uzziah was going to take on the role of a priest and burn incense on the altar of incense that's in the holy place in the, the main room of the temple, just outside of the Holy of Holies. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were eighty priests of the Lord, valiant men. I might also say an interesting aside here is that Uzziah also had another name in Hebrew. It was Azariah. So he has <laughs> there are two men who have the same name opposing. One's a priest and one's a king, and they're at odds with each other. Azariah the priest has gone in after him with, with eighty priests of the Lord, and and they're we're told they're valiant men. They're They're brave to oppose the king here. And they withstood King Uzziah and said to him, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. Then Uzziah became furious, and he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him, and there on his forehead he was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out, because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. He dwelt in an isolated house, because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Then Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land, so he even had to retire from his legitimate authority as king to a great extent, because he could have no contact with others because he was now a leper. God struck Uzziah with leprosy, is to communicate to us how important it is that the role of the king and the priest be separate, except in Christ. For failing to keep the sphere of civil authority. Out of the sphere of church authority, as we would say it now, Uzziah had to live the rest of his life separated from his people as a leper. John 18.36 tells us Christ's kingdom, that is the church, is not of this world. That doesn't mean that Christ is not the rightful ruler of the world, but that the church is not to be an earthly government. And that earthly government is not to be the church. They are two separate but mutually complementary spheres of authority both under Christ. The state is to protect the church, to secure quiet lives for all its people, to deal with the physical well-being of the people that are under its authority. The church deals with the spiritual well-being of the people under its rule, proclaims truth to the state, and prays for the state. Christ is the king of both. That means we have no obligation, as Christ's people, to obey laws that would force us to disobey God or keep us from obeying him. God is over the state. This is a great conflict of ideas that we have with the statist, with the totalitarian, with the modern leftist. The state is not the highest authority. They think it is. But it is not. If there is a conflict between a state or a local law, think about it this way. If there's a conflict between a state or a local law and the U.S. Constitution, which one wins? The Constitution, right? It trumps the lesser laws because it's the supreme authority of the land. God is the supreme authority of the earth. There's no authority higher than him, not even the U.S. Constitution or its officers. So as Peter and John did in Acts Four and 5 as Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego did in Daniel 3 and 6 when we are given the choice either obey the state or obey God the state is saying in order to obey us we want you to disobey God well we have to say well we're going to obey God sometimes we won't like the consequences the state wants to bring upon us for that but we still have to obey God But otherwise, as Romans 13 says, as 1 Peter 2, 13 and 14, other scriptures tell us, we should obey the governing authorities and we should pray for them. It's not just obey them grudgingly, but pray for them, for their well-being. That's hard when the people in office are people we don't agree with and don't like that much. As the Confession says, it is the duty of the people to pray for magistrates, to honor their persons, to pay them tribute and other dues, that is to pay taxes, to obey their lawful commands, lawful is a key word there, and to sub- to be subject to their authority for conscience' sake. Infidelity or difference in religion does not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority. So he can't say, you're not a believer, so I don't have to listen to you. No, you still do. Remember, Nero was the Roman emperor when Paul wrote Romans 13. Not considered to be a, a good and certainly not a godly man. So their infidelity or difference in religion doth not make void the magistrate's just and legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them from which ecclesiastical persons are not exempted. So this was a big problem in the Middle Ages. It said that if a priest committed a crime, the church would step in and, and say, well, the civil government doesn't have authority to punish him, the church will handle it. No, the, if he commits a crime against the state, he still is responsible to the state. Much less hath the Pope any power or jurisdiction over them and their dominions, or for any of their people, and least of all to deprive them of their dominion or lives, if he shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. So the Pope's authority, or the authority of anyone who has legitimate or not legitimate, if the Pope doesn't, in the church, authority in the church, that doesn't give them any authority in the state whatsoever. First Timothy 2, 1 and 2 tells us to pray for civil rulers. Romans thirteen five tells us to be subject to them, not merely out of fear of punishment, but because we know it's right for conscience' sake. Romans 13.7 reminds us to pay taxes. And as we reject the civil government's attempts to rule the church, we have to also resist any church officer's attempt to rule the state, as the popes have claimed the right to do. So both the church and the state are legitimate authorities under the kingship of Jesus Christ. They each have their own sphere of influence, and those are separate spheres. They have areas of authority that Christ has given to them. The church has the responsibility to proclaim the truth and the state has the responsibility to act on that truth. Defending the weak, rewarding godliness, punishing wickedness. To that end, we should choose only godly leaders as we have the opportunity to choose in our nation. Those who will listen to God's word as it's rightly preached. There are scriptural indicators that I believe there will come a day when the church and the state are both rightly governed by Christians. And in that day, they would work hand in hand, mutually supporting each other, but in their separate roles, keeping their roles separate under Christ. But no governing authority, whether in the church or the civil government, that fails to bow to Christ as king is going to survive to that day. As we read, as we read in Psalm two, kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. So submit to legitimate authority, but ever submit to Christ above all. Well, let's pray. Lord, we do look forward to a day when your word will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas, as we prayed earlier. Until then, keep us faithful to Call the state to its legitimate realm of authority to live up to its responsibility. May the church do the same, for we pray in the name of our mediator, the only king and head of the church, and the one who is the king of kings and lord of lords, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.